Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunar Nuenheim, futurist and author. In episode 139 of the podcast, the topic is the future of hospitals. Our guest is Dan Badat, CEO of Huma. In this conversation, we talk about scaling digital health, post-pandemic opportunities, and predictive care at scale. We discuss whether the hospital of the future is a building or a distributed care concept, or both. The host of this podcast, uh, Trun Arne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Cogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Trond's Books at trondandtime.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Dan, how are you today? Fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I thought we would uh, talk a little bit about medical futures. We love that. That is what we have spent for the past uh, almost 10 years. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Let's, uh, let's cover it because it, it would seem to be a slam dunk topic where everybody wants to make improvements. Everybody has healthcare needs. The market is essentially everybody on the planet. We all age. We all have various degrees of, of health problems. Um, but let's, you know, before we get into that, Dan, I, I wanted to just dig into a little bit of your background. You have this sort of, uh, I guess, in retrospect, cool immigrant entrepreneur bio. Like it's very easy to think of this as, oh, you, you grew up, uh, you know, in Iran, you moved to the UK. Uh, you know, you're a science and math and engineering whiz. And then, you know, you spent some years at John Hopkins and then did the famous thing that every entrepreneur does. You, you, you know, you start a degree program, uh, PhD, and then you leave before the thesis because you have this fantastic company. So at the surface, that's just story. How, how did that feel? Uh. I think the moving part from one country to another, and especially going to U.S. for me was, uh, how can I surround myself in an environment that has the best people? Uh, and the same story applies in the U.K. 
hence why I, I always wanted to move to different countries and experience those. But the decision making around, uh, you know, leaving your PhD program, uh, it was a really tough one, especially for me, because I'm coming from a background that you either become a doctor or a professor in university and entrepreneurship doesn't really at least existed uh, when I started as a category. Uh, so it took me some time and, and, and I'm not sure if my family, my father is actually a cardiologist and doctor. He was super <laughs> delighted about my decisions at the time. Uh, but in, in uh, looking back, it's always easier to connect the dots. It was the single best decision I made, but at the time it was the hardest decision uh, until that time. Well, I can imagine that, right? So if you if you do come from this sort of proverbial background of, uh, you know, uh, p- parents that really want the best for you and they see that you have aptitude and, you know, the very obvious thing is to go into one of the very clear professions and for you that, I guess, perhaps was the medical profession or, or at least some, you know, engineering or some very serious professional degree to, to become an entrepreneur is, uh, is tricky. Um, in the early days of what, what was called Metapad and then now became Huma, what was it that motivated you to start a company? What was the initial kind of observation or finding or technique that you uh, were sort of smelling out? Sure. So for me, it wasn't kind of like those moments that you wake up one morning and then boom, you have to do this. I think it was more of a journey. Uh, starting from obviously growing up in a family of like medics and uh, continue working at Hopkins and being very engaged and involved with the healthcare systems there. For part of my PhD research, I was at Oxford, again, exposed to healthcare systems here uh, and, and, and slowly getting into understanding of the data flow uh, for the patient within the hospital settings. And then in a wider picture, uh, you have so many people that they have conditions, chronic, acute, and so on, that they don't spend most of their time in the hospital settings. But usually the deterioration, the complications happen when you're not in, within the hospital setting. And, and often nobody has any visibility on those by trying to bring clarity of the view in terms of like how each patient individually is doing through technologies that maybe 10 years ago, even they were all considered gimmick and gadgets, but now they're really core part of our life. Uh, we had hoped and I had hoped there is a play uh, to, to do something. And one thing's led to the other and more every step we took kind of opened up our vision that we can do actually something bigger. And now we feel we are very fortunate because for, for the very first time, I think, in the history of medicine, because of the convergence of technology, computing, devices, obviously medicines as a whole, and adoption of all of those, the platform is almost ready to do something that impacts potentially everybody in the world, not only the rich or the countries that they have certain infrastructures, but almost every country. Well, that's fascinating. And I, my guess would be that, you know, coming from... Uh, you know, a part of the world where I guess Iran is is an interesting case in the sense that you you at least you know on on the surface you're known for having a very very strong uh, academic and uh, you know and and also I guess me- medical system certainly comparatively in the region but but there are of course people that fall outside of that system and certainly in other countries adjacent uh, there are many many needs that. 
you could sort of think in this futuristic perspective of medicine, you know, online uh, healthcare uh, becoming more available to to everybody. There certainly is enormous scope there. Um, but before that, I wanted to ask you just this question. You know, when you started your company, so you're you were a PhD student in bioengineering. You were not a, a medical doctor, is that right? That's correct. Was there the understanding, you know, when you in your early days were, were starting this company and you said, you know, I, I want to build a healthcare company, uh, traditionally, uh, you would perhaps have to be a medical doctor to attempt such a thing. Uh, do you feel like that is changing now and that adjacent professions, uh, you know, it's more acceptable for engineers or even, you know, people from very, very different professions to, to build teams that clearly also includes medical professionals, but that brings a perspective from the beginning, from the get-go, that isn't that of being a uh, primary care physician. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the area that we are targeting, most of it is actually engineering and, and mathematics and IT. Uh, the, the medicine part comes as a kind of the, the brain, the logic, the workflows, which, which are equally important, but the foundation is ultimately a technology company empowered with content and the, the insight that you need from the world of medicine. So in that sense, I think uh, we are living in a world that across the board for every industry, I think as long as you're playing within the IT digital side, and you have that foundations and you can bring other people that can help you, assuming that you have identified the right problem, uh, people can succeed. It might take a little bit longer. And the first you know, few years, you might have a kind of a bigger learning curve. But ultimately, uh, there is this magical things that if you put, you know, uh, every things you have and uh, behind something for five years, you become quite an expert in that field. Uh, so. That's my perspective. And, and the key thing is, I think everybody within an undergrad studies, you learn how to learn more than anything else. And then internet is just, you can learn a lot from it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm just saying, you know, healthcare is so complex. And, you know, for some hundred years, I guess, because medicine became professionalized, it sort of became a domain that you had to have that one degree or people wouldn't take you seriously. And in fact, you know, legally, there are a lot of protections around that. You know, who can, you know, bring medical statements to bear, who can, you know, uh, actually develop medicine. And, and, you know, there are all of these kind of regulations around what sort of professions are allowed to do this and that. But it strikes me that if we are speaking about scaling digital health more broadly, uh, you know, first of all, engineering is clearly very important, but there's a bunch of other things that comes into it. If could you just uh, maybe uh, cover the space of digital health more broadly, and then let's enter into kind of the future of hospitals, which we're talking about here. What are the challenges as you see them? Within digital health? Yeah. So, what are the main things that you you're trying to accomplish here? Because, the, you know, you could set yourself many, many goals, right? We've, we've been through the, the, the enormous potential, clearly, in, in healthcare. But I'm, I'm assuming that even, uh, e even for a company like Huma that provides uh, 
digital therapeutics, and we can go into some detail about what your product actually does. Um, are you just providing an open-ended platform and you're sort of hoping that medical professionals or, you know, patients or, you know, uh, doctors or other, you know, the people who interact on your platform are going to be the ones that actually fill it sort of with, with, uh, with the content? Or, or do you have really specific kind of customer journeys in mind when you develop your platform? So in, in our case, obviously, digital health is very wide topic and it has so many dimensions to it. We are very focused on uh, one area as a company. And for us is you have these patients that they do need care, uh, episodic care or chronic care. And historically, they had to come to the hospital setting, settings, clinical settings to be seen uh, in, based on certain uh, intervals. What if instead of needing them to come to the hospitals, what if we can bring the hospitals to your home and mini uh, basically hospitals in your pocket? And by doing that, not only connect you to your care team, but also give you a tool, in this case, an application for that specific condition. A good example could be COVID-19, given that it's a relevant one. And the application tells you what to do, what to expect, how to do it, uh, enable you to report certain informations from symptoms, vital signs, and other type of data that can be captured through mobile devices or connected devices that can come and get connected to a mobile phone. And then everything goes to your clinical team and they will have also a view of what's happening to you. And we might flag you or the clinical team might identify that you have you have a risk of X, Y, Z. And then this way, suddenly, while you're not in the hospitals, you're as if under care of a group of people almost 24-7. And that is what we are very, very excited about. And in the case of like COVID, as, a, as one example, that, that is a game changer and life changer for some people because it's one of those diseases that you're okay and then suddenly you start deteriorating really fast. If people can get engaged with you and get you to the right care, right treatment before you deteriorate, then you will have less complication. You don't need to stay as long as otherwise you had to stay in the hospitals and everybody wins. What, what are some of the things that you can do today and what are the some of the things that you uh, hope to do tomorrow within kind of uh, monitoring, right? So you, you, what you're talking about now is remote monitoring. Uh, and you gave the example of COVID-19. So I'm assuming symptoms relevant to COVID-19. I mean, obviously depends on what sort of input devices that exist there at home, right? But um, for example, I just bought myself and gave to my mother an O oxygen monitor. That's not something, that particular monitor is, is just a self-standing device. It's not an IoT device. It's just, obviously, it's a finger uh, pulse-based uh, thing. Uh, but you could imagine if those devices, uh, and I'm sure many of them are, uh, connected to the internet, then you could, you could get that kind of data. What is the easiest data right now uh, that is already in kind of clinical use? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your website here and clearly you know, heart rate, blood pressure, you know, these are sort of, I guess, the easiest, uh, low, lowest bar 
type of uh, statistics that you can monitor on an ongoing basis. What, what is the scope here? What, what are the sort sure. of uh, vital signs uh, that you are monitoring? So we as a company, we took an approach of being device agnostic and we have integrated and used different devices from six lead ECG that we have had projects you know, at the Stanford Medicines and, and other institutions to blood pressures, glucose monitoring, pulse oximeter, uh, and so on and so forth. These are the range of devices that we have already deployed in our projects. And, and the way it works, you have a specific conditions, the application gets configured to your use case, get prescribed to you, and then if that application might need some further vital signs being collected, so it creates the maximum impact, then one or two or three devices also might get shipped to the patient uh, as a part of the full package. And from then onward, again, you have a mini hospitals at your home in your pocket. And as a company, we have shipped over a million devices across the board, supporting different initiatives across our national deals in UK, Germany, Middle East, uh, and or, or our research and healthcare deals, again, across Europe and US and, and Asia. I, I just wanted to... Uh... To think more about the use case here, let's just say that, you know, in America, right? So I, I live in America. Uh, I see my doctor in principle once a year. And I mean, luckily for me, it's not 10 minutes, but for many it is. Although I guess that annual care has, has to be a little longer, that uh, sort of annual visit. Um, but anyway, w the potential is obviously enormous for all this data, but realistically, in many healthcare systems, you do not see your, at least your doctor, you may see other healthcare providers, right? Nurses, and you can call them or, or, or set up appointments or chat with them. But how, how often, uh, you know, uh, would you have to look at these, um, you know, these data uh, in order for it to have any effect? Or are you actually counting in here automatic monitoring by, you know, machine learning and other things in, in terms of getting their true efficiencies? And, and are the efficiencies that you see long-term, are they more benefiting the individual, you know, in order, you know, uh, in other words, you don't have to go to the hospital and this and that, or are they actually benefiting kind of uh, more population health so you can kind of track trends and learn more about the diseases or is it, is it actually both? Uh, no, definitely very good good point. Uh, for us, the the frequency obviously when a solutions like human application get prescribed, it's for a specific condition. You have a cardiac surgery, you had a you know heart failure, uh, you are suffering from AFib or COVID or diabetes, a uh, range of diseases and conditions that we support across chronic care and episodic care. Now, in those, you already know that you have a disease. Uh, so it's not for normal people that they're healthy and they just go for a routine checkup. Depending to your condition, your engagement with the solutions might be very different. If you have COVID for three weeks, you would use it three times a day. And from the clinical team, depending on how severe your condition is, they might check your data once a day or twice a day or even every four hours. But for another condition, let's say you are waiting and going through your surgery for your knee, they might check your data only once a month unless something gets flagged. And then obviously as a flag, you will come up and they might you know, attend to you immediately. So that's kind of uh, 
how it works for different conditions, there are different operational plans and engagements. And in terms of the benefit, from what we see, patients love it because suddenly you're connected, you almost have a 24-7 supervision to some extent. You get educated, the application tells you what to do, not to do, and so on. Uh, we have actually today, there was an article uh, on BBC around one of the national projects we have, been, we have done in Wales for cardiac patient. The patient, you know, quoted, uh, this is the best app, most important app in my phone for me. So people become very intimate uh, to, to, to the solutions. From the clinical and care team also, it's fascinating because it is such a low cost, high impact solution uh, with technologies like ours. Uh, these are independent studies. We double actually the hospital's capacity, uh, meaning that with the same number of patients and doctor, doctors and nurses, you can look after almost twice as more patients. And that is fantastic because you mentioned, you know, we all gonna suffer from some sort of conditions, aging populations and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't need, if the number of our patients double in let's say 20 years from now, we don't need to build twice more beds. We can actually leverage technology uh, and do a lot of things remotely and look after a lot of things remotely. And I guess pandemic is a good example of how we adopted working from home. And now we as a company, we have grown almost by 2x, but we had two floors historically in our headquarters in London. Now we decided actually we don't need even one of the floors and we only kept one while we have doubled in the size. Uh, so that is, I think, some, some really interesting movements that we are seeing based on real, large scale, impactful projects. You know, another thing I wanted to bring in is uh, in these discussions, superficially, when you talk about remote work or, or the value of being proximate, right? Uh, so for a work environment, you know, everyone uh, was talking about the importance of face-to-face -face communication and you know, seeing all the signs and you in medicine, you could sort of, the analog would be, you know, you have to look at the patient because there could be something wrong that's not immediate and the patient may not be able to verbally tell you. But now you are at least adding some digital sensors to that verbal communication. Um and then the other aspect, I guess, is, you know, I've been in hospital, I've been hospitalized, uh, uh, you know, a couple of times. And when you think about the number of times you get actually high quality care over a 24 hour period, being in a hospital, and I'm talking about being in a research hospital, MGH, right? Supposedly the world's, you know, one of the world's leading hospitals. I mean, I counted the number of actual medical professionals who looked at me over a 24-hour period, it was not very impressive. Like the number of minutes that I spent or they spent on my case, I, I might as well have stayed at home if they had an EKG monitor, if you know what I'm saying, right? Because I was supposed to be monitored for something that I didn't have that they thought might be heart-related. So you, you also have to ask yourself, what is exactly going on in hospitals today? And is it worth it keeping people there physically unless you're doing something that cannot be done remotely. So I want you to sort of maybe discuss that a little bit. What are we doing today? Because one thing is the future of hospitals. One, then another thing is today's hospitals. Couldn't you also implement your monitoring inside of hospitals and make them more efficient? Um, I think the 
answer is a little bit complicated because hospitals also they have a different levels, right? ICU is very different to normal, you know, beds and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in a setting that like, let's say ICU, they already have so much technology and computing going on. Uh, probably we won't add much value. But for even a patient, let's say if the patient has to really stay in a hospital, which we can argue, maybe not, and that's better. Yes, uh, technology like this ultimately makes everything more seamless, more personalized. We, in some cases at home, collect even more data than you would collect within the current hospital settings. Because if, unless you're in ICU, no one collects your data real time, you know, uh, and, and probably you have experienced it yourself. So in a sense, uh, suddenly you are able to do things that are better and easier and significantly also cheaper. Uh, and here's why we as a company get really, really excited. Uh, if you look at history of medicine and how historical, historically the delivery of care is built, you look at pathology, you look at imaging data, and then uh, in some cases, genomics data. And these are all amazing, you know, uh, insights that enable clinical team to make certain decisions. But suddenly, because of the computing, because of the connectivity, because of the devices, for the very first time, you can collect almost 24-7 real-time digital phenotyping of an individual and start having trends. I think in, 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 in finding something is wrong with someone, trend is very important. And that is why we are seeing and we are able to do certain prediction that historically was considered almost impossible. And these are the things that we have published, you know, based on the work we have done in some of the scientific journal, peer-reviewed journal. And this is just the beginning of it. We haven't even really started. What is hospital level care in, in your mind? What what should one expect? So if you think about the future of hospitals and you're saying, you know, digital care can play a big part there and, and can perhaps reduce um, hospital stays. But, you know, hospital level care, the level of care that where you get called up, where where people are saying, we either have to have these people in hospital or we want to release them, but we need very serious amount of monitoring for you. you and, you know, you were using the, uh, the use case of a few weeks, right? Uh, Post-op care, for example. Um, wh what are the kinds of things that we can expect we will be able to monitor? So, you know, we have talked about kind of the low-hanging fruit and the existing types of sensors, what is the next level of depth that this field yeah. is, is entering? What are the new devices you are excited to perhaps bring on board on the HUMA platform in the next few years? Uh, and then, you know, even longer term, what are the kinds of things we will be monitoring? Yeah, I think uh, to answer your question, what is hospital care? People usually end up in hospital, you know, when they have certain condition and suddenly an acute event happened and you are deteriorating really fast. Uh, heart attack would be an example. You break. So something. it has to do with response time then, right? I mean, that's exactly. my, because that was sort of my lead, lead into this is I, I sort of assume that if you put someone in the hospital, it's because you think we can react quicker. 
because we somehow will see it quicker. And then number two, we can actually intervene in a meaningful way quicker. That would be to me like the only rationale for a hospital. And series of events, they have compounded and created like a bigger event that is a complication or, you know, um, uh, something that suddenly a patient gets sick. And then obviously then you end up in hospitals. But if you really look at it, those sequence of events could have been prevented one by one or at least predicted and intervened before the patient gets really sick that now you have to, you know, urgent A&E, emergency, and so on and so forth. Uh, so hopefully the idea is the more we can decentralize delivery of care with these kind of technologies and be more proactive rather than reactive, you only end up in a hospital when you're really, you know, there's nothing else you can do and so many things are going wrong or you break something or you need some sort of intervention, I don't know, major chemotherapy or whatever, that it's important to be in a controlled environment in case something goes wrong as a part of that intervention, someone can attend. Uh, that is kind of our, our dream scenario as a company. And ultimately, if we deliver proactive predictive care the way that we want, people should live really long and die really fast. That is, you know, what we want to, you know, as an as a industry, everyone wants, you know, you live a really high quality life for a long time without, you know, major complications. And then everybody at some point, you know. Uh, so that's the holy end. grail of, of health span and lifespan. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking that if you think about a hospital, it's a little bit like a factory, right? So factories were introduced because they thought efficiencies of scale were best had when a bunch of people were together in a big room and they could do the same thing and standardize and you know send in the goods and and get it all you know the assembly line principle and you know car and automotive and stuff like that how on the planet earth did that sort of same notion make it into the notion of what a hospital should be uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about because as, as you were talking, I was just thinking a bunch of the things that are done, even in very urgent situations, couldn't many of those things be done on a mobile basis as well? I mean, if you had a Huma system installed in your house or in your household, uh, even if you needed chemotherapy, couldn't someone come with a remote kit and stay with you for the duration of that particular treatment and then check in after two hours. I mean, is, you know, um, I just see that there, there, there could be a, an enormous surge in, in also very serious critical care happened in a distributed fashion. 100%. Look, there are certain things that ultimately you always need the hospital, like surgery, obviously advice people to do it in the hospital and so on. But more and more, these trends are happening, you know, even dialysis, chemotherapy, and so on and so forth happening at home. And I think that's the trend. Uh, the same way that, again, at some point, you used to all the time go to cinemas. Now a lot of content you can consume it at home. The same way that historically we used to go to mainframe computing maybe 40 years ago to do something. But now we have a mobile phone and that does a lot 
uh, that movement is going to happen. And on top of that, there is this layer of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that hopefully it adds another intelligence to the, to the game that would be good for uh, care providers because it gives them further insight and, and, and vision in terms of what these patients might end up. Uh, and again, they can be even more proactive and predictive. To what extent does this demand a lot of infrastructure? I mean, in the UK, obviously, there's this saying, you know, home is your castle. And, you know, no, nowhere have we experienced this more than during the pandemic. If you have resources in your house, like you can have a home office, you have the internet, fast internet, you have computers, you have spaces for everyone in the family to work independently. All of that, obviously, is socioeconomic uh, factors. And one would hope that there is a way to beat that with digital health. Um, as, as you are looking into to, to the future of digital health with this kind of monitoring, is it feasible that much of this will show up on everybody's mobile phone uh, and, and that the sensors and even the digital devices you have to hook up can get to a price point where, where this is actually going to be true distributed care? Or what are the main barriers that you see for these kinds of very advanced sort of interactive online care uh, units and, and, and offerings uh, to be available for people that don't maybe have these advanced things as part of their home infrastructure? They don't maybe have broadband, certainly not paid broadband that they have paid for. They may have a mobile subscription of this, that, or the other. What is the prospect that advanced medical care can be delivered on a mobile basis for people? Even let's say a patient comes in and they have none of that, and you can actually give them all of it, give them a mobile subscription and just say, for three weeks, this is your thing. Just return it after three weeks, and, and, and we can do the same thing, even though you do not have the infrastructure. Yeah. I think... One of the uniqueness and opportunities around digital health, the most important tool you need there is your mobile phone. And there is a huge penetration of mobile phones and connectivity as a whole. Uh, in most countries, obviously some countries more advanced, but when you project and when you imagine an advancement of a technology, uh, you also can imagine the advancement of the infrastructure to support that, that, that solution. Uh, so if you project forward 10 years from now, uh, arguably most people will have a super powerful smartphone connected and arguably most of those smartphones, they have sensors that actually enables you to collect some of the data while you're talking. The heart rate, heart rate variability, we can already do it today. You know, we have integrated technology to the phone that your phone camera pick up your heart rate, heart rate variability. Soon there's a path to do the same things maybe for your oxygen saturation, your blood pressures, and other vital signs that matter. And that's it. You don't need anything else. You know, it's not that when you go to the hospital, there is some, some other magical device. Uh, and then it will be all about uh, ensuring that the right information from the patient's symptoms and content also collected. And that's, that's it. And it is already happening. And it's already happening not only for the tech savvy people. You know, in our national deals, we have done uh, biggest cohort of patients we had, 38% to be precise. They were and are 
between age 60 to 80 years old because we spend a lot of time as a company and work with a lot of partners like Apple and so on to make sure that our designs are simple. And obviously people, you know, can use technology and they're already using it anyway for, you know, WhatsApp or Instagram or whatever other, other tools that they're using. So in a sense, a lot of shift happened, especially in the past two years in terms of adoption of this technology. And I think in five years from now, it will be an amazing world. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the disruptive forces that are affecting this field. And let's maybe be specific to, to Huma in terms of what would, uh, you know, speed up or slow down growth, um, whether it's on the technology side, on the policy side, or even just in terms of business models and who gets paid for what, because I know that is a, you know, can be a major barrier in healthcare. But let's start with social dynamics. Uh, have you received some interesting feedback from from patients that have given you a sense of how these kinds of solutions are received? What, because, you know, patient-centric medicine is kind of a holy grail. You know, everyone wants to try to do that, and for good reason, because healthcare arguably um, you know, has deteriorated there because it started out, you know, the relationship with the family doctor, that whole institution now, uh, you know, has been weakened. So then you start losing what you had, which was that direct relationship. Uh, but then there is a way here to catch up and, and deliver patient-centered care. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten? No, definitely. I think one of the, the, most recent one I, I, I mentioned earlier in the call as well, uh, in BBC today, actually, it's live. Um, we have been doing this project around cardiac and one of the patients that they interviewed with uh, highlighted that this is the most important application for him. And most important applications in your phone, it's a big, big deal uh, because our life runs with this kind of technology, whether it's a communication with a loved one, through WhatsApp and messaging and so forth, or content that we are consuming and and emails and so and so forth. So that is one example. We have had also a humongous number of like people that they sent us letters and and and, and really appreciated the work we do. We are not a B two C company. We actually never interact with the patients ourselves. We provide the technology uh, and a platform, and then hospitals. They prescribe it and give it to the patients. And seeing patients putting efforts to find out where is our office, sending something to us, uh, or reach out to me directly uh, via LinkedIn uh, and send me a message. Uh, this is this is showing that people really appreciate and it's filling a gap that otherwise it would have made them very uncomfortable uh, going to whatever disease and condition someone is fighting with. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I think pa our patients are our biggest champion. And then we have our clinician and, and nurses are our second biggest champion. And then if we can align the system, and as you rightly mentioned, the payment model, the flow, uh, stakeholders that sometimes they have competing agenda because sometimes some healthcare system only get paid if the patient goes to the hospital, then by doing the right thing, they're actually hurting their business and obviously they have pay, bills to pay. Uh, so those are the systematic things that if we can fix, 
I think these kind of technologies can really, in a cost-effective way, impact massively. What about the policy environment? So the U.S. Uh, hasn't exactly been leading in this field until very recently, where some of uh, digital therapeutics was suddenly approved last year by the FDA, and and then that created a uh, you know a, a plethora of new, new new solutions here on on U.S. soil. How is that happening? You know, on the European side, I know medical devices regulation have been, uh, uh, you know, it's quite a tricky domain in Europe for for yeah. some, you know, for some years. Um, so that certainly must have uh, complicated your your business. But what about uh, more generally? Is the policy environment becoming more favorable to digital health uh, and, and biomarker monitoring? Uh, Definitely across every country, I, I think the top levels, they understand it. They talk about it openly. They are setting agenda and, and visions for it. Uh, with these things, because usually uh, they're big systems, uh, takes time. Uh, we had hope there will be faster. Uh, enforcement of resources toward this kind of technology, but still, I think there's a lot of attention coming toward it. It's an ongoing work. It's not perfect at all because technology and digital is very new. You know, 10 years ago, it did not exist. Uh, you, you, you would talk to someone that I want to create connectivity between patients and doctors through mobile phone. People would even question whether you need a smartphone like an iPhone at the time. Uh, so for 10 years, from one aspect, one perspective, it's amazing. From another side, given that how easy it is, we can empower hospitals at home for an entire country in a matter of weeks that potentially double the capacity of the healthcare system uh, for core diseases that are usually the most expensive. So the proposal and the propositions and the implementation are very simple, and we have done it. It's not that it's a hypothetical thing. We have done it for some countries, for some geographies, regions, and so on. Uh, that is where we think uh, we could do more, simply because that impacts more patients, and that leads to more people living longer, more people having less pain, less complication, more money being saved, by not ending up really sick in the hospitals and then being hospitalized for 10, 20, 30 days, even if you end up getting discharged at the end full healthy. Uh, that is what drives us. If you have one thing, uh, uh, you know, some sort of challenge to, uh, to any of these groups representing either technology players, regulators, hospital systems, or patient groups, which of these, or in collaboration, what is your challenge in order to speed up this development? What would help the most? I think the most important ultimately is the flow of the financing so that different stakeholders are aligned for doing the right thing rather than thinking for their own entity and unit. And there is no blame on them because this is how they're operating. This is how they have to run their own business. But if uh, there can be some changes in those models 
so that if the patients are happy and healthy and practically looked after, then this is the win for everybody and everybody gets rewarded. And it's much easier for me to talk about it rather than implementing it from the regulatory, from the policy perspective. I think that adds value. And then the second point is really encouraging healthcare executives uh, because they are the ones that are decision makers to really put digital health as a big agenda in their in their time. Uh, kind of, you know, I, I compare, if you look at the evolution of electric cars, if you would have, I don't know, talked to top car manufacturers 10 years ago, uh, Daimler or Ford or whatever, I'm assuming, I don't think electric car was number agenda for the CEO. Today, it is, obviously for some of them, kind of too late, but some of them are really catching up. And I think in every meeting, probably electric car comes out as, okay, we need really to shift something. I think we are like maybe year two of the same journey and we are still eight years behind. And hopefully we don't need to wait another eight years until executives realize, okay, digital health is the most important things for my hospital, for my care system, uh, for my payer model. Um, that would be my my suggestions that executives really spending time and trying it because we are talking about the cost that is one percent of a one percent of a one percent of their total cost that potentially deliver transformation let's go with assumption that delivers nothing because for one percent of one percent of one percent uh it is fine you can experiment and if it did something good, great, then double it down and triple it down and do more. Fantastic. Dan, it's, uh, it's great to speak with you. It clearly is uh, visible. You know, your, your passion here is very, very visible. It, it is an important area. And um, let's, let's see what happens. I mean, if the pandemic isn't a wake-up call for digital health, I don't know what would be, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and, and I think it's a teamwork, you know, all of us, we have to come together. It's a journey. It's medicine. We have to be careful. We have to be very evidence-based and so on. But it's something that together we can do it. Small step, but as soon as those small steps are successful, then fast steps. I like it. Well, thanks, Dan, for enlightening uh, me and uh, our, our listeners on, on this Thank very you. important topic. Thank you so much. You have just listened to episode 139 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronarna Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in trans product or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few trans books such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in all of Tron's projects, check out his website, trondenheim.com, which has links to his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. In this episode, The Future of Hospitals, interviewing CEO of Huma, Dan Badat, we talked about scaling digital health and whether the hospital of the future is a building or a distributed care concept, or maybe even both. My takeaway is that the future of hospitals is not going to be a simple thing, digitized or not. Healthcare is fraught with contradictions, complexity, massive costs, and the stakes of life and death. Technology is really only one part of the puzzle. 
Having said that, we are at the precipice of healthcare tech as a major differentiator and possibly able to bypass some of the complexities and deliver blanket improvements for all across society. However, more probably, the benefits will first come to the elite. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 100, The Future of Medicine is Invisible, episode 88, The Future of Virtual Care, episode 82, The Future of Digital Health AI, or episode 55, AI for Medicine. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary teams consisting of a subject matter expert, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegiyegii.org. The Futurized team consists of podcast host and sound technician Trond Arne Untheim and videographer Raoul Edward D. Trebethan. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.